0: Hey, hey, water coolians! Welcome back to another episode of Water Cooler Talk podcast. Today on the show, we are joined by a new friend, John Holden, to talk about the relative ease of placing a bet on a sports game, team, or or just a matchup in the U.S. As more and more leagues come to understand what legalizing and regulating sports betting means for well, their bottom line. And on the flip side, we have a conversation about the landmark Supreme Court decision to allow student-athletes to profit from their name, image, and likeness while still in college, and what that means for the future of college athletics. So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is Water Cooler Talk, episode 69, titled Pay Me, with John Holden. Enjoy! This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake they're absolutely not because they're real
1: so there were so many athletes who had been uh vocal about their opposition to sort of ncaa policies around last year's march madness that to me it just seemed like the perfect opportunity to sort of promote this paper that i envisioned for ncaa reform and the athletes would would be able to make a little money off of it and, and it kind of just reinforce the, the bulk of what we're talking about in the paper.
0: Yeah, I mean, you were, I mean, at this point, one of the first, I mean, I mean, I know there were like other businesses. I know that like moving truck company paid that one player tons of money. That player was Miami quarterback De'Eric King, but also they were paying for a spot on ESPN, like you mentioned, but you were among one of the first people to pay a college athlete for their services, which is a kind of a cool accomplishment.
1: Yeah, I thought it was pretty cool. I, I'm not sure that we have the coolest endorsement with an academic <laughs> paper, but yeah, I am i don't know if my kids will think it's cool, but I, I certainly got, got a kick out of it. And I think sort of the, the other kind of nerdy people in this space think it's cool too
0: (laughs) well first is the first right yeah
1: exactly
0: all right well john are you ready to jump into our first news story i am let's talk talk some sports betting this is from the philly voice written by michael tannenbaum september 17th 2021 tech billionaire puts money on eagles winning super bowl lvi and first sports bet from space If you have money to spend on private space travel, you certainly have money to bet on the incredibly long odds that the Philadelphia Eagles will win Super Bowl LVI next February. And if you put those two things together, you can probably make a little history. In early September, the first-ever sports bet was placed from outer space aboard SpaceX's Inspiration4, the first all-private orbital mission around Earth. The three-day trek, led by four American crew members, was part of a charitable effort to reach a fundraising goal of $200 million for St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. The commander of Inspiration4, Jared Isaacman, is the billionaire founder of payment processor Shift4 Payments and has made a habit of pursuing world records and world-firsts. From space, Jared approached BetMGM about placing two NFL bets— each in the amount of $4,000, with the first bet being an over-under on the score of the New York Giants Washington football team Thursday night football game, and the second being the long odds on the Eagles. The Eagles sat at a 66-1 to odds of winning the Super Bowl at the time of the bet. All proceeds from both bets, plus an additional $100 million personal donation from Jared, and a few items taken into space for auction, will go towards St. Jude's $200 million goal. As for why Jared chose the Eagles to win the Super Bowl? It's not entirely sure. He's a North Jersey guy, but Shift 4 Payments headquarters is based in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Or maybe Jared just thinks the Eagles are that good and will shock the NFL. Uh, So, John, I just want to get kind of a baseline on sports betting in the U.S., you know, what has been the history of sports betting in the U.S. and how is its history, whether it be you know the Black Sox of 1919, Pete Rose, Boston College, NBA referee Tim Donahue, become points of contention in how it is legalized and now being regulated throughout the U.S.?
1: Sports betting goes back to pre-America, America. Horse racing, the first horse race took place in 1665 in New York. So- Americans have a long history of loving to bet on sports, but it was only really until 2018 that they've been able to do so legally, at least outside of Nevada. For years, you've been able to go to Nevada and place sports bets in a sports book, and more recently, even on your phone in Nevada. But since 2018, we've had a. Supreme Court decision that came down that struck down this federal law that had basically confined sports bank to Nevada.
0: The Supreme Court struck down the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act of 1992 which barred state-authorized gambling except in Nevada that had already been grandfathered in prior.
1: Since then, more than half the country has passed laws accepting sports bets. And the the big thing that we've really seen is how the sports leagues have changed their tone <laughs> on uh, <laughs> what, what they think might harm, harm the game. I mean, for years, that Black Sox 1919 World Series where the Chicago White Sox Fix the game. Eight players, eight men out, as uh, the the book and then movie that came after the book discussed fix the World Series against the Cincinnati Reds, and this idea has been sort of held up as the primary reason that we can't have legal sports betting. If we have sports betting, people are going to fix games. Of course, most people who are out to fix games don't want to do that in a regulated market. Mm -hmm. You don't want to do it where the sports book, you know, the sports book needs to file reports with the regulator every month, report all suspicious activity. They're subject to the same financial laws as banks. So, Anything over a $10,000 deposit, and you've got to report it to the federal government. So the, the opposition for a long time didn't make a ton of sense. But now we're at a place where all the major sports leagues, perhaps excluding the NCAA, Have fully embraced sports betting and the added value that it can bring to them in terms of people who watch TV. So, those television contracts are going to go through the roof, franchise values are going up. Um, There's just a lot of excitement for team owners and sports leagues surrounding.
0: The rise of sports betting. Yeah, it's, it's more opportunity to make money, which, I mean, some of those sports owners, I mean, to own a sports team, you got to be able to make a lot of money and do a lot of, you know, maybe not the greatest things, but it is crazy to... See now sports anchors talking about and giving their analysis on sports betting lines. I know you had mentioned on your Twitter something along the lines of ESPN trying to get into the sports betting field with, you know, an evaluation of like, I think, or I believe like $3 billion over, you know, a handful of years. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. So exactly like you said, everyone is looking to bring in that sports betting component to their brand. Uh, We've seen Fox Sports do a deal ESPN already had an advertising deal back when DraftKings was just a a fantasy company. Now, of course, that was just a placeholder and they're a sports betting company now. Everyone's looking to get a piece of this action. Mark Cuban probably said it best when the day after the Supreme Court decision when he said that Everyone in the sports industry just watched Franchise Values Double. Mm -hmm. ESPN, it's the the same sort of thing. This is what people want to consume. They want to know these betting lines now that they can place bets on it legally. We always kind of had this media foray into gambling, though we used sort of other words around it. But I mean... Jimmy the Greek back in the '80s was on the NFL broadcast, so it's not like this is totally new. We we can just sort of do it out in the open now. So it was it was always there, but now it's you know no longer on the back page of the newspaper. You've got Scott Van Pelt talking about it out in the open.
0: Well, yeah, it's gone from you know like the Boston College Henry Hill Goodfellas situation, you know, the, only the Mafia is betting on these sports games to now. You know, with FanDuel and DraftKings, you know, an everyday individual who just watches sports can now bet on these sports.
1: Exactly. And in a lot of ways, what we saw with the rise of daily fantasy sports sort of softened softened people's view to sports betting. And maybe it wasn't this terrible vice that we've been told it was for the last 25 years people have found it's largely a nice ancillary product to watching a game I mean, it's
0: like it's kind of like in the fantasy realm you know if you're playing fantasy football you have a little more skin in the game and you're more interested in watching the game so the NFL is like, Of course, we're going to promote fantasy football if more people watch and more people want to go to games and more people want to have football parties.
1: Absolutely. And that Saturday night Hawaii game that's always on at 1030 (laughs) Pacific time. Now people have a reason to watch that. Mm -hmm. So I I think everyone is realizing that sports betting is going to drive engagement into sports and, and really sort of convert casual fans to more interested Fans than they were before. And some of the academic research in this space has already shown that sports betters just consume way more sports than the casual fans.
0: According to a survey done before the 2020-2021 NFL season by the American Gaming Association, sports betters are 54% more excited about the season than general fans at 41%.
1: They they knew this with fantasy sports too, that, you know, the the fantasy players are your biggest fan. It makes a lot of sense to cater to them because they are the ones that consume it more than other people.
0: Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think there's always been this perception, especially coming from, you know, the Black Sox of 1919, that you throw a little money in the ring and you can get these players to do whatever they want. But as a former sports athlete myself, never in college, I didn't get that far with it. But there's this inherent pride and inherent competition that these athletes have that i mean yes you'll find you'll be able to find athletes that will throw a game or point shave or you know take a dive in boxing or fighting but i i firmly believe that the vast majority of athletes they want to win and you know they're not willing to take a few bucks on the side to lose because They want to win and they understand their legacy is important, more important than a few dollars. But you also do have, and I don't want to, you know, deal in any absolutes, we're not the Sith here, but you also do have athletes that, you know, may be struggling and may have other outside influences that cause them to, you know, struggle with money and struggle in, you know, contract negotiations that may give them that bigger opportunity to be open to, all right, here's a few bucks, maybe don't shoot as many three-pointers this game because I'm betting on this over-under. Yeah,
1: that is certainly still a viable concern. And uh, the people who look really closely at this have basically identified a few criteria that really sort of amp the likelihood that someone's going to fix a game. So there's sort of three factors. And the first is you're looking at people who think they're underpaid Mm -hmm. or undervalued to the team. And then you're looking at whether a league is corrupt. And then finally, do people see that league is corrupt? And those are sort of these three factors that we look for in, in foreign markets to determine whether we think a league is going to have fixing in it. You know, For the most part, for all the criticism of referees and umpires, <laughs> at most people don't believe that American leagues are corrupt. Corrupted.
0: yeah um, not like FIFA that's a that's a FIFA a right, soccer right. whole totally different conversation
1: I mean we might have our views of Joe West as an umpire mm-hmm. but for the most part MLB for what they are most people don't think that they're a terribly corrupt organization that' is out manipulating the results of every game for sort of the bottom line. And so I think you're right when you say that what we're talking about in the US context is a really small minority of professional players that could be susceptible to fixing games. And for the most part, you hit on a lot of the key points that's going to make athletes vulnerable anywhere. And that's What kind of outside problems do they have? I mean, are there addiction issues, whether it's gambling, drugs, something else? These types of things will make anyone vulnerable to doing some sort of criminal activity. So they're they're factors that are really present everywhere across the board. And it doesn't have much to do with the legal betting of sports and in a lot of ways, by legalizing sports betting, what we end up with is a system that's better designed to provide outlets to identify this behavior along the way. Like better,
0: better regulation.
1: Exactly. Better regulation and people actually watching. And that's a, that's a huge part of it. I mean, for a long time, the sports leagues revi- relied on Nevada and the sportsbook operators to tell them when something was amiss. Mm-hmm. When we had point shaving at Arizona State back in the 90s. It was not until there was a disproportionate amount of money that showed up at Vegas Books where where anyone knew that anything was going on. Mm -hmm. For a long time, Las Vegas has been this early warning system. And now we've just got, you know, a a much finer tuned listing system to identify these problems
0: just this is maybe for me and hopefully the listeners will like this as well but like what was it about nevada specifically las vegas that made it this central hub for gambling
1: great question so back in the the 30s and 40s a lot of Entrepreneurs went out West and Nevada sort of embraced this gambling mindset. It let people set up casinos for a time. There was a lot of connections to organized crime as people are undoubtedly aware of Bugsy Siegel and the Rat Pack running around with mobsters and things like that. But through the the 60s, 70s, 80s, and then the 90s, we really saw Las Vegas transition from this old Vegas image of sort of organized crime runs the show and you only come here if you you want to bet big dollars and launder money and things like that to a a multi-billion dollar entertainment megaplex. And that's really what it's become and it's highly regulated. There's just so much money flowing into Nevada now that doesn't even involve gambling, that everything needs to be under the the strictest guidelines because there's so much money beyond simply on the tables that everything needs to be so regulated that we don't have that perception of uh, crime anymore.
0: Yeah. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but, you know, it's not just millions and millions of dollars, it's billions and billions of dollars. And when that amount of money is involved, there's There's a lot of, as you were saying, there's a lot of eyes on where that money is going. I know there's been, you know, a recent controversy with Evander Kane in the NHL with the San Jose Sharks. You know, obviously he has a bit of a gambling addiction issue, but I believe they found that it had nothing to do with betting on games and, you know, playing badly to help, you know, the over-under on something.
1: Yeah, the NHL just concluded their investigation finding nothing into Evander Kane, and certainly conspiracy theorists are going (laughs) to say, of of course the NHL, of course, of course. Yeah. And that's just how these, you know, these investigations run by the league. Yes. I mean, there are definite, if you want to find a problem with the investigation, you don't have to look too hard, but at the same time, you know, these are conducted by outside law firms. They know what they're doing and, You can only cover up so much. In a a case like this, where Evander Kane very publicly had spent a lot of time in Las Vegas, he's acknowledged that he's dealt with gambling issues. Uh, He had a recent ESPN interview where he talked about his his problems with gambling. It it was something that appeared on the surface initially to be, uh uh-oh, we've got a big problem Mm -hmm. because of his ex-wife. I guess still current wife, but in the process of a divorce right now, posting to Instagram that he had manipulated his play for gambling purposes. And it's kind of the classic fear story of match fixing where oftentimes it is someone who gets into gambling problems and this is a way to make things better. So happily for Amanda Cade, who's gone through a lot of personal turmoil in his life uh, recently with regards to bankruptcy and these gambling problems, the NHL found nothing because that certainly would have ended his NHL career had something been found.
0: Well, when it comes to, you know, like gambling addiction and obviously addiction in general, you know, is this relative ease of online betting, you know, sports betting, betting in games, is that becoming an issue? I mean, if you can place a bet, obviously being a billionaire helps, you know, get the balls rolling. But if you can place a bet from space, you can place a bet from anywhere. And then how do you regulate? All right is this person of age to place this bet when, in reality, everything's done or can be done online?
1: Yeah. And I think this is another one of these situations where we have a fear of a a problem that's very real. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we have to look at the situation and ask ourselves, is this problem worse now that we have a regulated market where sportsbooks are required to have some checks in place to identify problem ga- gamblers, is that worse than it was before where people could still bet online, but they were doing it at offshore books that are unregulated and they effectively pay no regard to problem gambling for the most part. Those people were allowed to continue incurring enormous debts to them.
0: and Yeah. And I know this, this is a little more extreme, but it's like, you know, Obviously, you're going to have a few, you know, let's say underage kids slip through the cracks, but is that better than having bookies that are going to break your legs if you don't pay them up? It is better, you know, the grass is greener on the other side, but you're still going to have these things that slip through because regardless of how much money is into something or, you know, how much regulation and eyes on something you have, things are going to slip through the cracks. Nothing's a perfect system.
1: Yeah, and that's one of the things that's kind of been frustrating watching the regulation of the gambling industry to this point is there's been a lot of discussion in absolutes. We need to move to sort of a place where we accept that sometimes we have good intentions and things fall through the cracks. And we certainly don't want kids betting on games. We know that from studies that have been done in the UK and Europe, that this is a major problem.
0: The study mentioned by John is from the University of Salford, Manchester, and is titled Adolescents Gambling on the Internet, a review by M.D. Griffiths and Jay Park.
1: We know that kids are betting on games. Kids like sports. They think gambling's fun. And a lot of this has to do with finding ways to restrict kids from having access. And so this is two-factor identification systems, proper online protocols to ensure that people aren't accessing accounts to sports betting sites through unauthorized ways. But at the end of the day, there's always going to be that percentage of either problem gamblers or kids who are able to access gambling sites because of the fact that a parent or someone else gives them access to an account and that was one of the things that came out in some of these studies from Europe is that you and I absolutely would never give our kid our <laughs> draftkings account absolutely yeah. not like my kids are pretty young but
0: i never I don't know if they daughter. start if they start guessing yeah. things right i might <laughs> i might think about it
1: <laughs> but there's just a small percentage of people that We'll yeah, there's get- that. There's,
0: there's personal responsibility that parents have that these online sports betting books shouldn't be responsible for.
1: Exactly, and, and so that percentage is always going to be
0: there. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, you know, movie ratings. It's like, we're going to put an R on this movie, but if kids sneak in, that's not on us. That's on you.
1: Exactly. We just probably can't realistically regulate that out.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I would like to welcome to the show, John Holden. John is an assistant professor in the Department of Management in the Spears School Business at Oklahoma State University. John? John? Welcome to Water Cooler Talk.
1: Thanks, Adam. I'm glad to be here.
0: Uh, As someone who has spent a lot of time within sports, and this kind of goes into what we're talking there at the end, you know, what hold does the sports community have on our society? And why is it important that each sports league creates an ethical field of play in competition?
1: I think sports has played an important role in society uh, across time, really. Well, at least last 2000 years or so, as we've seen sort of the pandemic sort of changed how we've all thought about life. One of the things that I think people wanted to come back the most was sports, going back to sports betting. uh, One of the biggest sports during the pandemic was Russian table tennis because (laughs) they could apparently run this in a quarantined area where two Russian table tennis players would – be streamed live on the internet, and you could wager on this in various <laughs> U.S. markets. And it just showed that people miss sports so well, much. Well, and I know,
0: you know UFC was very similar with that as well. They had a big boom because they were able to put on shows where other sports couldn't.
1: Absolutely. Dana White created Fight Island, and basically, we had a UFC island divorced from society, free from coronavirus, and he brought us sports and I'm sure that UFC's numbers on those pay-per-views went through the roof just because there was no competition. Mm-hmm. It was a brilliant plan from a, a purely financial aspect.
0: Yeah, no, I think, you know, sports played such a, a important factor in In humanity and just entertainment in general, you know, you even look back to all the way to the gladiators. You know, we have this idea that, you know, these gladiators would go out and constantly die and get killed in battle, but that's not the case. You know, gladiators were very well supported sports athletes that didn't take a lot of damage if they were good gladiators. A lot of money was spent on making sure they were in peak fitness because people generally need this entertainment to almost escape normal life. It's like, all right, I had a shitty day. Let me go. I mean, I'm a Vikings. I live in Minnesota, so maybe the Vikings aren't the best example. The (laughs) Gophers are pretty good, so I'll use the Gophers as an example. But, you know, I'm having a shitty day. You know, tomorrow will be Saturday. I can watch the Gophers beat up on a team. (laughs) I spoke with a little too much hubris. The Gophers ended up losing to Bowling Green, fourteen ten, in their first win, Bowling Green's first win, against a FBS school, or Division I school, since 2019. But (laughs) at least the Vikings won, I guess. And that gives me a sense of escapism from my everyday life. And I think that's what sports allows a lot of people to feel that, all right, I need this as a part of society because it can offer me this entertainment, the same way movies, books, TV shows, music do.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I know that when uh, sort of January rolls around and those blues of the the winter come and hit after Christmas, and then that Monday, I get home from work and there's no Monday night football. I'm a little bit brought down from where I, where I normally am. <laughs> normally, that Monday night football game gets me through into Tuesday. So, yeah, sports play a really important role, sort of keeping a morale in society and giving people you know something to look forward to. Mm-hmm. I think sort of any college football fan knows the optimism of that last weekend in August when their team takes the field and everyone's still undefeated and you've got a shot going forward. But sports play a huge role in sort of teaching us in society sort of that we can put things on pause for just a little bit and and escape.
0: Yeah. And because of that... Or I I think we need this ethical playing field because if you're going to watch a game and you know this game is rigged or you you know this other team is gonna play dirty or you know you know that it's just not gonna be this ethical competition, that's not worth your time. And that's not, you know, as you say, you know, needing that Monday night football after a long weekend, you're gonna be like, Well, shit, that didn't really add anything to my life because I knew it wasn't fair. And thus, we continue the cycle of, all right, another shitty day and another shitty day and just another shitty product where, you know, humans need escapism. They need to escape to these other things. They need to segment their life into these other things. Because if you don't have that, you live a very unhealthy life.
1: Yeah, we're, we're in an era where television probably would be dead without sports. Live broadcast TV. It's really the last thing. That uncertainty of outcome is unlike anything else that's out there. We don't know what happens. It separates sports from movies, professional wrestling. It's what we have. It's why we love it. We don't know what's going to happen.
0: Yeah, the excitement of college football on Appalachian State beating up on a number one team. Exactly. Blowing your mind. I think it was Michigan. They beat Michigan at the big house.
1: It was. As a Michigan State grad, I (laughs) approve of that message.
0: (laughs) um uh, before we move on myself and water cooler talk are on a mission to help get back to different parts of the community and those who have helped build our show to where it stands today for each new episode of the podcast the guests will bring with them a charity of their choice to represent on the day of their episode going live water cooler talk will give a donation to that charity in honor of the guest as well as a global platform to spread a message of love hope, and togetherness. And we hope you listening to this episode can join in to help spread their message to your own personal audience. John, your charity of choice for today's episode is the ASPCA. Do you mind explaining, obviously, I think most people know what they are, but do you mind explaining a bit about what work they do in the animal space and the importance of, you know, improving animal laws in our country? I know you got your dog there in the background as well.
1: Yes, they're both (laughs) over here on the bed. So, I love my dogs very much. Before I had kids, they were my kids. <laughs> and uh, the ASPCA does a does a great job of helping animals around the country and and ensuring that when animals are abandoned or hurt that you know they're helped and they find new homes. They do a lot for controlling the animal population and ensuring that you know we have sustainable animal populations and providing adoption for for pets as opposed to breeding commercially pets
0: for people yeah as someone who's worked in the animal space you know i've never met anyone more passionate than animal people it's animal people and then sports fans (laughs) and then everything else under that but yeah animal people are super passionate so i'm always love being able to share a a good organization
1: yeah i think it's a a great organization and certainly my dogs are very happy to be part of the show in the background
0: (laughs) All right, John, are you ready to jump into our second news story of the episode? Yeah, let's go. This is from the Guardian Sport, written by Tom Klutz and Alvin Chang, August 27th, 2021. Should top college athletes earn $800,000 a year? Some believe so. For Martin Jenkins and other members of the 2014 Clemson Tigers football team, it was a simple rallying cry, but others saw a financial opportunity. The three-word phrase, we too deep, began as an internal mantra chanted by players in the locker room and on the sidelines, but it took on a life of its own when Martin transformed it into a song and coaxed his teammates to help produce a music video. The song became an anthem for the team, and the video went viral. Here's a short clip. Turn up, turn up, turn up. It didn't take long for retailers to cash in on the popularity, and soon, We Too Deep, shirts flooded the Clemson campus. After trying to sell his own line of shirts, Martin was, well, quickly shut down by Clemson's compliant officers who told him that the sales would be a violation of NCAA rules, which prohibit college athletes from earning money during their playing careers. For more than a century, the NCAA has served as the chief governing body of college sports in the United States. Comprised of three divisions, the organization regulates more than 1,000 institutions nationwide and has swelled into a multi-billion dollar outfit, as media companies have paid ever-increasing sums for the broadcasting rights to marquee competitions like the college football playoffs and the NCAA basketball tournament, better known as... March Madness. Recently, with the college football playoffs, ESPN purchased the rights to broadcast the college football playoffs at $475 million per season from 2014 through 2025 for a total price tag of approximately $5.64 billion dollars. So a lot of money involved here. In 2014 while still a junior at Clemson, Martin turned his newfound interest into advocacy, signing on as a plaintiff in what was described by ESPN as quote, the most direct challenge yet to the NCAA's long-standing economic model, end quote. The antitrust claim pushed for student-athletes to be paid according to their value on the open market, asserting that the NCAA has illegally limited a player's compensation to their athletic scholarship. It was consolidated with a separate, narrower lawsuit filed around the same time on behalf of former West Virginia running back Sean Alston, whose lawsuit focused on targeting the NCAA for its caps on education-related benefits. Martin Jenkins and Alston's battle culminated in June when the Supreme Court ruled unanimously in the favor of the former athletes. A week after the decision, the NCAA bowed to mounting pressure by announcing rules that would allow student athletes to make money off of their name, image, and likeness, commonly known by the abbreviation NIL, a policy that would have enabled Martin to capitalize off the success of his music video and the phrase, We Too Deep. Under the new NIL rule, student-athletes are now free to land endorsements or sell their autographs just to name a a couple of now-permitted business opportunities. Even with these watershed developments which upend the NCAA stringent rules against compensating student-athletes, the model has, well, not been completely dismantled just yet student-athletes won't start collecting salaries from the university, and the NCAA remains adamant that they should not be considered employees. That change, should it ever arrive, is certainly many, many years away. Richard Borghese, a, a business professor at the University of South Florida, modeled a scenario in 2016 wherein players in college football, by far the most Lucrative sport in the NCAA from 2003 to 2014 college football brought in 2.28 billion per Year and this was prior to the college football playoffs. They would also receive a cut of NCAA revenue similar to the cut 47% received by NFL players. His ultimate goal is to estimate how much money players would earn if the NCAA allowed them to be paid. I am saying NCAA a lot and it is a mouthful. He calculates the very best players would be due around $800,000 a year due to the staggering amounts of money they generate for their schools. These would be five star athletes and smaller school players or backups would be due around $21,000 a year. Borghese wrote a similar scenario within college basketball and estimated that the best players would earn about $613,000 while the least-heralded recruits would earn about $50,000. It is important to say both these scenarios would include paying for full tuition at their respective schools, so the student-athletes would still be responsible for paying their full tuition. During oral arguments in March about the case, Supreme Court justices were unimpressed by the NCAA's attorney's insistence that student-athletes retain their quote-unquote amateur status. While the revenues generated by big-time programs are used to subsidize the often enormous salaries of coaches, Clemson coach Dabo Sweeney has a $8.3 million annual salary, and the world-class training facilities on campus, I also believe Clemson has a slide in their athletic facilities. Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito stated, the athletes themselves have a pretty hard life. Well, (laughs) maybe not the Clemson athletes with the slide. For his part, Martin Jenkins said that although he came from an upper-middle-class family, many of his teammates struggled financially during their time at Clemson. Martin stated, They face training requirements that leave little time or energy for study, constant pressure to put sports above study, pressure to drop out of hard majors and hard classes, really shockingly low graduation rates, and only a tiny percent ever go on to make any money in professional sports. Fewer than 2% of college athletes go on to play professionally. So the argument is that they're recruited, they're used up, and then they're cast aside without even a college degree. How can this be defended in the name of amateurism? So John, in your paper, Reimagining the Governance of College Sports After Alston, there's a line that that really stuck out to me in the conclusion, and it ties into that final quote by Martin Jenkins, but for 90% or so of those student-athletes, these years playing college, specifically playing college football, could be the most valuable earning years of their lives. But why is that perception of, say, playing at a big-time college program like Clemson that has a slide in their athletic facilities, or just playing for scholarship in general, considered enough of a form of compensation by some individuals when these schools are bringing in billions of dollars?
1: Well, I think the NCAA has spent a lot of money and a lot of time over the last 100 years teaching us as a society that there's something special about being their term student athlete (laughs) and that Mm -hmm. amateurism is this thing that we should value and that, oh, you're being compensated with a scholarship and it doesn't matter that you're responsible for earning this organization $2 billion annually. That scholarship's enough. I mean, can we really put a price on the value of an education? They've been really good at marketing and that's convinced a lot of people. And I think it scares a lot of people as to what costs they think could come if that amateurism falls. Um, Certainly, if college athletes are declared employees, that raises a lot of new costs for universities in regards to taxes that they have to pay. Public universities are not at the peak funding era at the moment, so... It, it would be a monumental change. And so I think there's a lot of fear around getting off that amateurism ship and acknowledging what college athletes actually are, which is they're workers and they're working for the university to generate revenue.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think that's a, a fabulous point. You know, you take someone like Trevor Lawrence, who was this year's, you know, first overall draft pick. He's a five-star recruit to Clemson. Obviously, Clemson is a bigger program. But I should probably check what the annual tuition is for Clemson. The cost of tuition plus room and board for South Carolina residents at Clemson is $34,164. And the cost for out-of-state students, which Trevor Lawrence was, is $57,156 per year of schooling. But I guarantee Trevor Lawrence is bringing more money to Clemson than he would getting paid in tuition and even in, you know, additional stipends. And that is a real problem, especially, you know, I'm someone who firmly believes that you should work and get paid for what you're worth, and you should hold yourself to that worth. And so, you're having these kids that are bringing, you know, millions upon billions of dollars. I mean, Texas is a school that has a billion dollar plus football program because now they have their own, you know, network. as, as I think, I mean, maybe we can both agree on this, but... At the end of the day, all right, if you pay these student-athletes as employees, that means the guy at the top is making less money, and the guy at the top usually doesn't like to make less money.
1: Yeah, and that's being sort of one one of these touch points that they've cited is, well, why why would the athletes listen to coaches if the athletes are making more than them? Every professional
0: athlete, pretty much, I mean,
1: everyone on an NBA roster is making more than the NBA coach, I mean – this happens all the time. They're really poorly thought out arguments for the most part as to, to why we should maintain this this system where athletes are compensated with a degree. I mean, what you said about Trevor Lawrence is exactly right. Zion Williamson. Like, there's no way that Zion Williamson got more out of his one year at Duke than Duke got out of his <laughs> exactly. one year at Duke.
0: Well, yeah. And then, you know, you have situations like I believe it was like North Carolina where it's putting, you know, college athletes into, you know, easier courses. And I know, you know, according to the NCAA, so um, who knows how true that is, but like 90 percent graduation rate for student athletes, but a 78 percent graduation rate for college football athletes. And that number dropping. So obviously there is this difference, because if you're in a big program like Clemson, like Alabama, like Ohio State, a lot of your time every week during the football season is spent on football. I can barely juggle having a job and doing a podcast and working out and trying to eat healthy. And now these kids are on this huge stage. I mean, some of these games perform better in viewership than NFL games. And you're going to say, hey, you also need to go to class, and you need to study, and you need to take all these exams. That's not how it works. I, I'm pretty sure, you know, big programs would rather have their players focus on football than focus on school, because football, at the end of the day, and it's very unfortunate, but football is the thing that brings in money to those schools, not kids getting graduated and having degrees.
1: Yeah, no one ever remembers the NBA graduating class, but they all remember <laughs> You know, the upset win on the football field. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right. I mean, big time college football is a full time job. That is 40 hours right there. And even though it's not all counted as work according to the end, how the NCAA calculates things, you don't compete at that level, putting in only the quote unquote required time. So you're doing a lot of other stuff that is going towards football that is not going towards your classwork or getting a part-time job or any of these other things that regular college students are doing. And the people who are benefiting from that are the university. It really is just nonsense. This idea that these athletes shouldn't be compensated when, when they're bringing this money to the university.
0: Do you think, you know, and maybe this is geared more towards basketball, but do you think like that, Uh, the fear of overseas opportunities played a factor in the NCAA willing to make this change?
1: You know, I'm not sure it did so much as the NCAA is feeling a lot of internal pressure. I'm not sure how much these external threats played a role versus the internal threats Mm -hmm. of conferences like the SEC. Especially now, you've just taken Texas and Oklahoma, two of the biggest brands in the country and brought them under your umbrella. Like that carries a lot of weight somewhere in the front of mind of a lot of these people on the NCAA board and Mark Amrit is this fear that you end up with either the power five walking away or the sec walking away and saying, thanks a lot guys, but we're going to do this on our own now. You were great for 100 years, but that doesn't work for us anymore. Well, yeah, I
0: think the, you know, the Texas, Oklahoma situation of them leaving, you know, the Big 12 and then going to the SEC really showed a lot of just like everyday fans that, oh, these conferences, you know, specifically in the case of the SEC, have a lot of power and they're not necessarily needing to live under the rules of the NCAA. And so they're saying, well, if we can get these schools together and then we can get enough revenue ourselves to pay these players Why do we need you?
1: Yeah, I think that's a a bigger threat and a more viable threat than a lot of people who don't look at this area are considering. And I think that the SEC in particular, the Big Ten and ACC aren't too far behind either in terms of the power that they have. And collectively, they can force a lot of decisions that they want. Mm-hmm. I think the NCAA exists at the pleasure of those conferences.
0: Well, and, and then just from, you know, this new ruling, like, how do you see the landscape of college sports changing with now compensation and play? I think, you know, we can kind of go back to our conversation with about sports betting. And like, obviously, there's compensating compensation happening behind the scenes. I mean, you know, I know college athletes that have been paid for things, you know, I won't name any names but how do you ensure the fairness of you know that power and control by bigger programs in sports because you know a program like Texas which i mentioned is worth over a billion dollars generates 164 million a year obviously has more sway than say your school Oklahoma State at about 54 million and obviously that discrepancy gets much larger once you get out of the power 5 conferences so a school like Texas can say well we'll pay you $800,000 to come to my school and then a school like say Texas State it's like well crap I can't compete with that.
1: My response to that would be, well, do we have competitive balance now?
0: Exactly. That's what I was saying with, you know, this compensation does happen already. You know, we can talk about, you know, like Reggie Bush and, you know, even just him getting a limo to the Heisman Awards was a, you know, a violation of the NCAA rules. So this stuff is happening and we do have these power dynamics, but could it change now that there's compensation in play? And like we said with sports betting, now that's being regulated and now that there's more eyes and there's more money involved.
1: I think a lot of the fears, particularly over NIL, are being overblown. The idea that College athletes being able to monetize their name, image, and likeness being the the end of college sports <laughs> is, is nonsense. I think right now there's a lot of excitement for people like me who who can have an athlete like Geo Baker send a tweet as, as sort of a promotional thing. But I really think that many of these deals are going to fade out over over time. Mm-hmm. Yes, there will always be money for the Trevor Lawrences, Bryce Young, Zion Williamson. There's always going to be companies for them for
0: sort of But those players don't come along a lot.
1: Exactly. They're there's rare. a small handful of them every year.
0: You know, yeah, there's you know 100, I think 126 Division 1 teams and there are 130 FBS Division 1 schools, not 126. You know, how many of those teams are actually competitive and how many of those players are actually, you know, they're a lot better than me or you, but how many of them are competitive enough to go to the next level? Obviously, that 2%, you know, number says that they're not.
1: Exactly. The NIL market is going to sort itself out either this year, or next year, or in five years. But it, it's going to be there. It'll be a really nice sort of benefit, especially if schools get on board and, start putting students' names on the back of jerseys to sell to fans, and then giving students, the athletes, obviously, a cut of that through a licensing deal, that'll be a really nice sort of incentive for students. But I don't think there's always going to be this money for, say, like the Texas State defensive line to have an endorsement deal from everyone in San Marcos, promote every pizza shop. I just... I think that's going to fade out as as particularly businesses who might be a little more cash strapped start to realize that having the guy that doesn't actually play a sport on TV doesn't actually bring <laughs> in a ton of customers to you. So,
0: yeah, I went to, you know, Colorado State for one year of college and, you know, Colorado State, I mean, even though they got a new stadium, they're not on TV a lot.
1: <laughs> right. And I think it's great that those athletes can make money because, they are they're filling seats and they're bringing and it'll money. be
0: potentially for more you know regional opportunities rather than national opportunities and i think you said something to the effect of you're not really going to always have players that say get a sponsorship from papa johns go to a team that is sponsored with dominos they're if you're sponsor if you want to be sponsored by dominos you're going to go to a team that's sponsored by dominos
1: exactly and this is there's been a lot of sort of what ifs worst case scenarios and it's just not proving to shake out that way, proving to be a few athletes are getting a bit more money in their pocket. Everyone seems a lot happier. We have this system that's a little less oppressive. We're making good strides.
0: Yeah. And I think it's, you know, going to be very similar to sports betting. There's going to be, you know, ups and downs, trying to regulate this and legalize this. And, you know, I think we're going to see a lot of action when the, uh, you know, that new NCAA football game comes out by the creators of Madden. So I think we'll see a lot of just shaking and rumblings. But eventually, yeah, you're going to get to that equilibrium where, you know, it works for the vast majority of people. Obviously, there's still going to be people that will be like, fuck, man, I want to get more money. But in the end, you know, you're shooting for that mass majority of people that can say, all right, this system works, most people feel comfortable about it, and if enough people don't feel comfortable enough about it, we can change it. I
1: think that's exactly what we're going to see. Well,
0: and then, you know, speaking of, you know, Reggie Bush, kind of to wrap this up, you know, what do you believe should be done about the players and teams that, you know, have previously, quote-unquote, violated NCAA rules that now would be technically legal under the new INL laws? NIL laws.
1: So, my view in this extends sort of across boundaries. I'm a Pete Rose, should be in the Hall of Fame. Joe Jackson should be in the Hall mm-hmm. of Fame. Give the man back his Heisman. He earned it. Whether he got a backpack or not, that didn't change what he did on the field. We maybe have a different discussion if someone cheated on the field about whether they should have their accolades brought back. But if uh, someone. Took some benefits, as the NCAA likes to call them, off the field. I don't understand why we would erase them from the history books and minimize their athletic achievements. It's not like they were out there cheating their opponents. They were. Yeah,
0: Reggie Bush dominated that year. He wasn't, you know, holding anything back. I, I definitely agree with you, but. I honestly think the NCAA, I think, you know, Reggie Bush will get his Heisman reinstated. But as far as like, you know, the, the slap on the wrist that like USC got, I don't think the NCAA will say, we were wrong on that and we'll give you that back because they can't. How do you give that back on not being able to recruit as many players? Yeah,
1: yeah, I think that's completely right. I mean, how how does the NCAA make it up to SMU for devastating their football program mm-hmm. back in the 80s to point that? It's never recovered.
0: I don't think a big governing body like NCAA is going to say we were wrong and let's figure out a way to fix this.
1: (laughs) No, I think people holding out hope for that are going to be sorely disappointed. But I do, I do hold out hope that at some point the NCAA will come around and implement positive changes and give student athletes a much greater voice in the process, as opposed to. You know, a bunch of old retired generals and politicians, and university <laughs> presidents that haven't been in school in 50 years running the show. I mm-hmm. mean, is there a more out of touch group running any organization in this country? I mean, other than Congress? I don't, I don't really know. <laughs>
0: Uh, John, thank you for taking the time to share your perspective on some of the strangest and most interesting news stories the world has to offer in a productive and meaningful conversation. Listeners, if you'd like to read more pages or articles written by John, or maybe just get his opinion on Florida State football potentially going 0-11 this season. (laughs) We are recording this. I want to be frank. We are recording this the day before they go against Louisville, so I may be eating my words as this is being released. I did not end up eating my words on Florida State as they would go on to lose 31-23 to Louisville. Uh, You can do so by following him on Twitter at John Sports Law. Once again, on Twitter at John Sports Law. And of course, as always, those links will be included in the description of this episode and on our website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. So to take a bit of a connection from our first story, uh, what's your take on instant review in sports? and taking the, quote, human element out of crucial game decisions, for example, you know, robot umpires and such in the MLB. What's your hot take?
1: I We should have robot umpires. <laughs> the idea that we should have these human flaws when we don't have to have them doesn't make sense to me. We should eliminate this. There's now so much money flowing into sports that so much more than just the outcome of the game rides on a correct decision. I mean, the amount of money that changes hands when someone blows the call on whether a kick went through the uprights in a football game, which happens once a year, they totally botch it and replay shows it went through. The amount of money that changes hands, there's no reason that we shouldn't be using all the technology that we have.
0: Completely honest, I used to be a sports purist and I said, that's just part of the game. But as I've really realized, you know, how much money is involved with sports betting and how people's lives are affected, I know I can't remember the name of that um, Detroit Tigers pitcher who almost had that perfect game, Gallardo or something. Yes,
1: yes, he's slipping my mind too.
0: The Detroit Tigers pitcher's name was Armando Galarraga. Um, but there's so much more involved. And it's like, yeah, they have the money, just get it right because potentially i mean if someone's throwing a million dollars on say the vikings to hit a field goal in the last second and it doesn't go through their lives are ruined so let's get these calls right because there's so much more at stake than just this game
1: yeah and that's what it really comes down to to me is that we've moved to the point where yes sports do provide us an escape but they're also a business mm, and very good point. if you are running a business particularly a publicly traded business, you better be doing everything you can to maximize that value for the shareholders. And that is putting in every system that you can to ensure that your product is consistent and as state of the art as possible. So to me, if we're running sports as a business, which we are, it doesn't make any sense to continue to have that human element where we don't need
0: it. I don't know why it takes so long for these instant reviews to be Put into place. You know, you have a thousand different camera views in a stadium. You have thousands of people in, you know, a booth, not in the state that the game is being played at, looking at these cameras. Why is it taking so long? And it's just like, I think that's why people are so angry at all these instant reviews and they're hesitant about robot umpires because, oh, now, especially in the MLB, we're adding on potentially. 20, 30 minutes when I don't even think we really need to, I think these things can be instantaneous, but for some reason we're not making those choices.
1: Oh yeah. That you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I don't think people are actually upset about instant replay in the NFL. I think they're upset that it takes five minutes when, TV's already reviewed it 15 times and told you two minutes ago and had a commercial
0: break,
1: (laughs) how how it's going to turn out. Maybe that's why. Maybe that's why, John, (laughs) the
0: commercial break, the almighty commercial break in sports.
1: (laughs) It is a business after all.
0: It is a business. Uh, All right. As always, thank you to all my listeners for listening to another episode of Water Cooler Talk, the only such podcast. On the internet, hosted by myself and guest hosted today by John, where we take the strangest and most interesting real-life news stories from around the world and just try and have a good old conversation about some of the ideas discussed in those bizarre news stories. John, we are now to my favorite part of the show, where I hand off my show to you to close out however you see fit. Whatever words you think need to end the show in a perfect bow, if you want to sing a song, if you want to tell a joke, if you have a good story to tell, whatever is right for you in this moment, the floor is yours.
1: So I think I'll close out by just saying that, you know, the next time that you watch a college football game or a college basketball game and you think you hear the amount of money that is going into college sports, think about the athletes on the court who aren't being paid directly by the schools for putting on that event because, you know, at the end of the day there's no real reason with the amount of money that is flowing into college sports For them not to be paid by the institutions that they're playing for, I'll leave you with that, Adam. And I am very grateful to have had the invitation to be on the show.
0: Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. You know, every any time I can talk about sports and share some of my knowledge, it's always a it's always a fun conversation.
1: Yeah, this was awesome. All
0: right, well, listeners, until next time, peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world, and while many of these stories may seem fake. They're absolutely not Because they're real